Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. Determining the validity of capital punishment is a complex task, especially when approached from a Christian perspective. To arrive at a biblically informed decision, we need to consider both the Old and New Testaments, giving special attention to the nuanced understanding the Apostle Paul gave in Romans 13. Furthermore, the practical situation in America is really difficult to discern as well. For example, we have to balance out the exorbitant costs of sustaining convicts on death row and the handful of cases where an executed person turns out to be innocent on the one hand, and capital punishment's ability to deter crime and mete out justice on the other. We certainly do not claim to have all the answers in this episode, but we at least wrestle with this subject fairly and give you a detailed look at a very important subject. Here now is Oscript 37, Killing Criminals, A Christian View of Capital Punishment. Today we're talking about a very important subject, capital punishment, and we want to look at what the Bible says about this subject and how we as Christians, because the Bible obviously talks about a lot that happened before Christ as well, but how we as Christians should think about this subject today, and we'll be taking this from an American perspective. So if if you're listening from other countries, this could very well be a different situation for you, but we're going to approach it from the perspective of what happens in the justice system in the United States. To get started, I thought we'd look at the first capital punishment statement in scripture, which comes from Genesis chapter 9, after the flood and Noah and the ark and all that, God laying down some very basic laws in Genesis 9 verse 5, it says, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you shall be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly, and so on. So this is sometimes called the Noahide laws, where God sets down this precedent. I mean, there had been an earlier incident with Cain and Abel, and the issue was not clarified at that time. And so what what God did was he put a mark on Cain, but did not execute him. And then now that time has progressed and the world has become full of violence, he's laying down murder as a capital crime and saying that if you shed human blood, then by humans your blood will be shed, which I think is a, a very strong precedent in Scripture for two things. One, the punishment for severe crimes, but then the other, the dignity of human life because other crimes are not treated as severely as this. And so the the harsher the penalty, the more, I guess, valuable, you could say, the, uh, the victim in this situation. Then the next place that we really see a lot with capital punishment is in the law of, of Moses itself. In the Torah, we find a number of capital crimes, actually quite a few capital crimes mentioned there. And... The system in place there is not a matter of taking vengeance into your own hands. It's not like you can you can say, hey, this person committed adultery. 
the moment you find out, you just like kill them yourself. No, you have to take it to the, the elders of the village. There are two witnesses that have to agree. And there's a legal process in place so that the meeting out of punishment does not occur by the victim, him or herself. It's, it's something that would happen as a result of the judges. And there's a lot of information in there about how, how that works. But it is the case that capital punishment was totally common within the law code of ancient Israel. I've heard it said um, that in Genesis 9, it was when God instituted the idea of government, and it was for the working of justice, particularly in rule. And this is the only rule, really, um, that is given. Then later on, you have the Mosaic Covenant and the laws that come out of that, and God sets up a much more sophisticated form of government. Under the law, there were no less than 21 different capital crimes, including murder, a contemptuous act against a judge, causing a miscarriage, false testimony uh, in a potentially capital crime, negligence by the owner of an ox. <laughs> in other words, like you know your ox is like the, the goring type and then you don't do anything about it. That would be like manslaughter. Manslaughter. Uh, idolatry, blasphemy, witchcraft and sorcery, false prophecy, apostasy. It's like falling away from the faith, breaking the Sabbath, homosexuality, bestiality, adultery, rape, incest, cursing parents, rebellion by children, kidnapping, drunkenness by a priest, and then unanointed individuals touching the holy furnishings in the temple. So that's quite a long list, a lot longer than I think our list is in our society today, right? And I think it's easy to get the impression, and sometimes bring this against the Bible, that God is a wrathful, bloodthirsty deity who just wants another pound of flesh to satisfy his rage or something like that. But in reality, these laws were not given with that kind of a heart. They were given for social structure. They were given as deterrence. And the heart of God we read about in other places of the Bible. Yeah, I think that's a great point that is a pretty long list of of offenses and coming at it from a 21st century uh, American point of view, that would seem to be very heavy handed. I can understand people looking at that and saying, you know, that seems very harsh. But I do think it's important to reinforce the point you just made, Sean, about the purpose of of such seemingly harsh uh, sentences and policies was to keep the Israelites together, cohesive as a unit. You got to understand that these, these were people who were numerically very small. They had threats all around them. Taken in that light, these laws not being punitive as much as preserving. To your point there, if you are the person who is attracted to the dark arts and you're dabbling in witchcraft and you get caught, and executed for it, you're going to say, oh, that's so unfair. But let's say you're just like a God-fearing Israelite who loves God and wants to keep his laws, and then somebody in your in your village is practicing sorcery or necromancy, and then because of that, that person would put the entire village at risk for evil. Or if you're the person who is committing adultery, you don't like the law that says it's a capital crime. But if you're the innocent victim who has been committed adultery against, then it's a whole other situation. 
you want justice. Mm-hmm. Ancient civilizations, j- just like today, if somebody commits adultery on their spouse, you do want to kill the other person. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just a natural response to that kind of a, a breach of fidelity and covenant. And what often happened in tribal societies is escalation of violence where the person takes vengeance into their own hands they kill the offender and then now to make it right the family of that slain person is not going to come back and kill the whole other family and Mm. then now you have clans going at clans and tribes going at tribes and eventually full-out war and that's the escalatory nature of violence whereas separating it out i mean it does seem harsh to us all these different capital crimes but like separating it out from the people's taking the matter into their own hands and then getting judges involved is a huge step forward for the human race Mm -hmm. and there are very few civilizations who practice anything anything like this in antiquity you have the code of hammurabi some babylonians we're, we're doing some similar things but like by and large it's it's just like vengeance is mine i repay saith me in the ancient world and in, in, in many other places in the world as well. So I think this is actually, although from where we are now, it seems very primitive, from where they were then, it was really progressive. And yeah. I think we need to recognize that nature of it, not get it so on our high horses and judge this ancient way of doing it as being you know, barbaric from where we are. I mean, that's just like ethnocentrism, assuming that our culture is the right standard for all time. Mm, good point. God's attitude with the whole question of punitive consequences versus preserving the tribe, uh, his, his heart is sort of um, illustrated in Ezekiel uh, 18.23, where it says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his ways and live? And then later on in verse 32, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. That totally busts open the whole evil sky god approach to this. Yeah. I mean, he's he's specifically saying here, I don't take pleasure in this. This is a necessary fact of social engineering to preserve this tribe so that they don't annihilate themselves or, or get so dissipated mm-hmm. and spread out. But it's not like he wants this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He doesn't enjoy it. It's not like the executioner goes to do their job and God's like, whew, I'm f- I sure feel better now. It's yeah. like, no, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18 is an amazing chapter. And if you were to distill it to its essence, it's not um, it's not an emphasis on what you have done in the past, but who you are in the present. Speaking you know, to violators of God's law, God has pleasure that you turn from your wicked ways and live. Also, it says, don't sit on your laurels. You might have been you know, a law-abiding citizen of Israel your entire life. You turn from God at the end. Um, you're not really a follower of his anymore. This is under an old covenant, which is more like a covenant of works and a covenant um, of atonement, not the covenant of grace that we're under. What God says is what's important is who you are and who you choose to be. Another verse that goes right along with this that I also love is Ezekiel 33:11 that says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And that goes right along with the text in 2 Peter 3.9, where we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Mm. The heart of God is that people would repent. It is that they would turn. However, from a legal, 
social civil perspective he also has these laws in place for ancient israel so that when people don't turn when they don't repent when they do continue towards the path that there are some sort of like limits and boundaries and protections in place Mm -hmm. so that the society doesn't just implode yeah, so it doesn't threaten the whole and you wind up with right. a Capulet and Montague situation where for generations there's bad blood and threats even more so than there would be normally. Yeah. Hatfields and McCoys. Yes. I also want to bring in some, some of what Jesus said here because he actually quotes the eye for an eye statement from the Old Testament. In Matthew 5.38, he says, You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone should sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And if anyone, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs. And it goes on from there. And Jesus talks about how we are to love our enemies. This mm. Now, this overall subject is not something that I want to really emphasize in this episode here, other than to say Jesus specifically calls out this justice principle this retributive justice principle eye for an eye life for life hand for hand tooth for tooth is the fuller version of it right and he says but i say to you Mm. and i feel like as christians we don't want to get so focused on what the torah says that we reject our rabbi jesus and the new wine and the new wineskins that he brought and end up like Pharisees ourselves. We don't want to do that. Right. And he's held up as the ultimate example of who we should emulate, not necessarily Mo. I mean, Moses was a great uh, example of, of someone who followed God incredibly closely. In fact, probably aside from Jesus, the closest person to God. But yeah, Sean, I agree. I mean, the New Testament has Jesus's attitude is illustrated in, in several ways. I'm sure that we'll get into later in the podcast about this sort of uh, retribution, this this attitude towards it, and how it, it sort of shifted with under the new covenant. Regardless of what you believe about whether the government has the right to execute the death penalty, we know that as believers, that is totally irrelevant to how we react and how we treat people. God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We um, have absolutely no provisions in the New Testament for taking revenge on people. We are to love unconditionally. We are to turn the other cheek. Uh, regardless of you know whatever you might believe about the right of government to execute an, indiv- an individual, um, that has no trickle-down effect to the believer's life. For me, what, what, what you said there is distinguishing between Romans 12 and Romans 13. Romans 12 talks about, I mean, that very verse you just quoted there, that you will not take vengeance into your own hands. That's in Romans chapter 12, which is describing the behavior of a Christian. It says that we are to bless those who persecute us in verse 14. In verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And then in the end, do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is clear imperatives, commandments to Christians on how we are to treat people, especially bad people, difficult people, violent people. And yet, then there's Romans 13, Romans 13 give, lays out the role of the government. And what we read there is that as Christians, we are to be in subjection to the government and that the government is given authority and 
we might even say the divine right to use the sword. It says in Romans 13, 4, for he is he, the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For that reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, I think it's important to keep in mind here that what Paul's articulating is the gold standard for how a government and God work together. God has set down certain laws, and people follow those laws, for example, moral laws, right? And then the government is there to punish the evildoer. That's the way it's supposed to work. Mm. Now, in reality, Paul ends up getting executed by the very government he's talking about in the very city he's writing to later on in his life. Not mm -hmm. that much longer, like ten, maybe 10 years later. Okay, So we're not going to say that the government was God's minister or servant at the moment they were cutting Paul's head off mm. for being a Christian. Because you know what? Being a Christian is not immoral by God's standard. So the government should not be punishing people for being Christians or not worshiping the Roman gods. So there needs to be a little nuance with this, but just going back to Rose's statement, I wanna heartily aff affirm it, and that is that there are different roles for the church and for the world. And the role for the church, for Christians, for Christ followers, is to follow Christ mm -hmm. and obey his teachings. And then also what we, what we learn from the Apostle Paul and the other writers of the New Testament that echo Jesus' teachings that we are called to show love and to be and to be risky and radical in expressing outra outrageous cross-shaped love towards others, whereas the role of the government is they do have the right of the sword. They do have the right to, to execute or to use coercive violence to punish those who will not respond to other means. So... I want to affirm both of those and then also kind of like add some ambiguity for the case of crazy governments because if, if somebody sets themselves up as a dictator and they're, they're just like killing people because they don't like people with the name Matt or something, then I would not submit to that law. And I think we have precedent in scripture to disobey unjust laws. Like when they called the apostles and they said, don't speak in this name. And they said, we have to obey God rather than men. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if that makes sense. I, we got to get back to the issue of capital punishment here. Are there any other verses in the New Testament you want to go to first before we really get into our own particular issue here in America? Just on the topic of redemption, especially in the New Testament, we look at the um, case of the Apostle Paul, and I, I guess looking at him from our federal court system, he had committed some pretty heinous crimes, and you know, he would have been a felon. Um, looking back on you know, the rampage um, that he went on against early believers, in 1 Timothy 1, he writes, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. I was thinking about murderers in the Bible, and we've got three of the huge ones. We have Moses, David, 
and Paul. And these are people with Wait, blood. Did you say Moses, David, and Paul? Moses, David, and Paul. List of murderers. <laughs> I know there are like uh, pillars, right? There are pillars. So these are the people that we look up to. But these are men with blood on their hands that God took, transformed, worked through, and did amazing, amazing things with. Deliverance, salvation, leading his people, being types of Christ. Like, literally, that is how um, God worked with these people. The redemption that we have, even before the cross, and how much more after the cross, is incredible. Yeah, and uh, I'd I'd like to take this opportunity to hone in on uh, David a little bit. He committed two capital crimes under the law of Moses, which would be adultery and murder. I mean, he sent Uriah to die. He knew what he was doing when he did it. And Uriah was one of his closest... One of his 30 mighty men. Yeah, I mean, he was close with them. They they had shed blood together, and they were... It could be argued David's deepest sin that he that he ever committed. And under Moses, Moses' law, he would be, you know, convicted and killed. The king's not above the law. And we all know he wasn't. He went into a period of mourning. He tried to save his son, but his son, you know, the punishment was that his son lost his life. But I want to I want to hone in a little bit on uh, Psalm 51. His servants came in and said, you know, despite your mourning and your supplication to, to God to save your son, and your, your son has died. And he immediately got up, washed, continued on with his life. He was he was punished. That was the punishment. But he wrote this psalm. Psalm 51, it says, uh, Be gracious to me, O, Lo- o God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And this is the key verse here when we're talking about redemption. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. This is the same idea that Rose mentioned a few moments ago where people that have committed capital crimes or heinous crimes, whatever it may be, there is a chance for redemption for them and for God to use them. How many stories do you hear about the people that are on, you know, 25 to life or on death row, whatever it may be, who find God and are, you know, prison ministries and are a tool for God later on in life? If you end their lives or if you support that policy in general, I mean, you're, you're, you're sort of limiting what God might be able to do in, in these people's lives. So that for me is, is one reason why I, in principle, don't support capital punishment. And I'll also point to, uh, to wrap this little section up, I'll also point to Romans 5. Uh, it talks about how Christ died for all. And in uh, Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Skipping down to verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. I believe that Christ did die for, for all he, I, mean, I don't believe that there's any qualifications to that statement that, that he died for, you know, the rapists and the murderers and the people that have done terrible things as much as he died for regular people. There's no conditions there. So what I hear you saying is that you're against capital punishment because you believe that somebody could later change, repent and be forgiven. To and be killing used, them eliminates that possibility. That and that person could further be used to, by God, to... It's like we talked about last week with euthanasia. If, if 
you're suffering and you want to die and you endure and people see your example, that can be a great tool that God uses to bring people to him. As he said, if, if you kill them, that opportunity no, is no longer there. I want to bring in at this time the Catholic position on it. Not that I do that all that often, but <laughs> once in a while the Catholics have a really clarified position on something and it's helpful to think with, not that I'm recognizing the uh, authority of the Pope or anything here. But this is from the Second Catechism of the Catholic Church. I believe it was in the 90s it came out. And uh, this is part three, section two, chapter two, article five, number 2267, which says, assuming that the guilty party's identity and responsibility have been fully determined, the traditional teaching of the church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty. If this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. It's a really interesting position. First of all, they're, at least in this one little statement here, they're, they're not arguing from your what you just stated there, Dan. Not, they're not looking at the aggressor's uh, potential to later rehabilitate or change or whatever. They're, they're looking at it from the perspective of society and protecting society from mm. the aggressor, from the perpetrator. So they're saying if you don't have adequate civil structures in place so that you can confine that person to not affect. I mean, think about the scenario you're living out in the woods in some rainforest and you have a tribe of like 200 people. And then you have somebody's like going around killing people. What are you going to do with that person? Well, you could somehow fashion a cage and assign somebody to watch the cage and feed the person in the cage and take them for a walk to go to the bathroom every so many times a day and use all your resources on that. Uh, which is pretty impractical, I guess. Or you could execute the person. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of a moot issue speaking as Americans because we do have this incredibly extensive... Sprawling. <laughs> <laughs> sprawling, extensive civil system. And there are these prisons and everything else. So... Uh, from the official Catholic position in America, capital punishment would be unacceptable. But in other societies, especially societies with, without the resources to incarcerate, then it would be justifiable and right. So I think that's another issue to take into consideration is the safety of the people in the community. Um, I always feel awkward talking about this kind of a subject because for me... I'm weighing on what are what the government should or should not do, and I don't really have much authority with which to speak because my my only authority is within the scriptures themselves, and they're telling me what a Christian should do. And so it's clear for me what Jesus says is, "You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek, walk the second mile, and so on." So like for me, it's it's clear like I, I'm not to take vengeance into my own hands. Mm. I'm not participating in this. But if you want to ask the question, well, God has also given the government a separate role to play. Uh, so he's given them that right. But then the question is, should they exercise that right when it comes to executing criminals or not? And what you're saying is no, because that person could change. What the Catholics are saying is no, uh, so long as they have some other way to deal with a criminal. It's a little more nuanced. 
Yeah. What, what else do we have? I would clarify my position to say that I do recognize that, that you know, that verse in Romans where, you know, we're to be in subjection to the government and, um, you know, paratexts. I don't think that extends to agreeing or staking the same position as the government. I think that's really impractical. You'd be a party to all hosts of official atrocities um, from mass incarceration to war to a whole a whole bunch of things. Enslavement of Africans. Yeah. So, yeah. so you wouldn't find me, you know, at the Capitol protesting, you know, vehemently protesting capital punishment. But if we were to have a conversation in a coffee shop about what I think about capital punishment, I would lay out, you know, a lot of what I just said. So I think there is a difference there. Um, am I, I think there are cases where Christians can, as you said, actively resist the government in their policies. This one for me, doesn't fall into that camp, but I can have an opinion as a Christian and as somebody that's looking at the Bible for my examples of how to, how to address and approach a certain subject. Those aren't mutually exclusive stances. You can, I, I think there's room to, to yeah, have both have of those opinion. stances. Yeah. yeah. Especially in a society where they allow you to, to some degree, exercise the, the duty of a citizen or the right of a citizen to, yeah. to vote, uh, although this issue is not up for vote. That said, and to, to bring up that point, if it were to come to a referendum, some sort of constitutional convention or whatever it may be, where it was, would you repeal the death penalty? I would vote yes. That's within the confines of government. That's a government function, a referendum would be. Let's bring up two more objections against capital punishment, just so that we can discuss them briefly. One is the economics of it, and the other is the justice concerns when someone is found to be innocent later. So uh, bring this around to where we live, us, the three of us that do this podcast. Um, we live in America, as you know. <laughs> and federally, capital punishment is still in place, although a number of states have instituted bans on it. Just in researching this episode a little bit, so currently, and this is from statistics I found on ProCon.org. Uh, this is from 2016. States that have the death penalty, there are 32. Uh, I won't list them all out, um, but some of the highlights, I guess you could say, uh, Texas, um, Washington, California, Alabama, Louisiana, Florida, Missouri. So a lot of Midwestern states, a lot of um, uh, New Hampshire's on the list, so there's a Northeastern state. Uh, and, and, and Pennsylvania. So these all, these states all have the death penalty. Uh, 18 states and the District of Columbia have abolished the death penalty. These include uh, Alaska, Connecticut, D.C., Hawaii, Illinois, Iowa, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, where we all live, North Dakota, Rhode Island, Vermont, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. So uh, that said, there are uh, even though 32 states do uh, provide for the death penalty, uh, it's not all that common. I have uh, statistics here from uh, Statista.com. Uh, number of executions in the United States from 2014 to 2017 by state. There are only nine states on this list of the 32 that allow it. Texas is at the top, executing 10 in 2014, 13 in 2015, and 7 in 2016. The other states are much lower, um, with the exception of Missouri and Florida, which have uh, closer numbers to Texas. But for instance, Arizona executed one in 2014 and none in 2015 and 2016. So it's not uh, unheard of for, for sure, but it's not, it's definitely, you know, we're not executing dozens of people per year. Right. So w what you're saying, just to summarize a little bit, is that 
out of the 32 states that allow for the death penalty, mm-hmm. only nine of them in the last three years, only nine of those states have actually executed anyone. Yeah, according to the stat. Okay. So United, the United States is 50 states, right? And then out of the 50 states, only nine states had executions in the last three years. Because the ones yeah. who don't allow for death penalty are not executing people either, obviously. Right. So, so it's not as common as uh, maybe you might think. I don't know. Depends on where you're coming from. Yeah. I mean, to somebody that's uh, on the hard left, uh, complete pacifist, that's an absolutely unacceptable number. To somebody on the right, it's like, no, nah, we should hang them, hang them high or you know, kill well, them I people. Think, I think the, uh, the economic concern is, is, is very real where yeah. someone uh, said to you just last night in my hearing, why should I pay to feed and clothe a monstrous criminal who, who murdered his own eight-year-old son? Mm. And you know, I felt like that was a really, I mean, it was, it was very impassioned, but it was, it was also a very financial concern. And what you said when we were talking about this just, just last night was, well, it costs more to execute somebody than it does to feed and clothe them for the rest of their lives in, right. a, in a jail cell. Now that to me it just blows my mind. Yeah. What's the deal with that? <laughs> so so what it comes down to is the cost for prosecuting uh capital cases. So a prosecutor has evidence, they bring it to trial and there's a jury and if they're seeking the death penalty, the cost for that prosecutor's office, which is publicly funded, to bring about a death penalty conviction is much higher than if they were seeking, say, you know, 25 years to life because there's a higher burden of proof. There's more that goes into these cases. This is a statistic from Death Penalty Information Center, which I am not sure what side of the issue this website is on. Cases without the death penalty cost $740,000, while cases where the death penalty is sought cost $1.26 million. Uh, maintaining each death row prisoner costs taxpayers $90,000 more per year than a prisoner in general population. So that sort of illustrates... And they stay on death row for several years. Yeah, they go through several... I mean, depending on the cases, uh, they go through several rounds, years and decades of appeals. I mean, Mm -hmm. people that were uh, convicted of crimes in the 80s are getting executed today. It's a generalization, but, but it takes a long time to exhaust all those appeals through all the different courts. So yeah, I mean, you're paying for each... According to the statistic, you're paying $90,000 more a year for, for a death row inmate. So that sort of gives uh, a, a little bit of insight as to how in the world it could cost more. Because you would think, well, if they're convicted of this, then, you know, they, they die the next week. But that's just not the case. Well, so to, to somebody questioning the finances of it, you could say, well, the money you have to spend to get that person executed is greater then the amount of, so if, if money is a concern, then you should be against capital punishment right. because that's actually more expensive. I feel like either way you go with that, that's a weak argument. Yeah, like, I do too. I mean, this is somebody's life. This yeah. is you know a much bigger issue than like dollars and cents. I mean, it, it would have to be a huge difference in cost between the two. I, I I agree that it is a weak argument. I think it's conflated often with the emotional and and justice side of it. Like this person did this heinous thing. He killed like three kids. Say. And my tax dollars are going to pay for for you know for him to be get three hots in a cot per day. It is sort of blended with the emotional justice argument, but yeah, I, I agree that it is. You can't really talk. You 
you can't you, put a dollar amount. Yeah, of you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want right. to be in a position of, of arguing that from so the purely. So that we've we've dehumanized. Yeah. Right. We've made people into objects. What about the next issue, the justice concern? Do you have any stats on that as far as like how many people are found to be innocent? Like once DNA, Rose does. I do. Uh, take a guess, guys. How many innocent and likely innocent death row prisoners have been set free from death row since 1975? Five. I'm gonna go slightly higher. I'll do eight. 150. What? Yeah. That's crazy. And I feel like the number of people who have been executed is probably not too much higher than that since 1975, as it has been decreasing a lot. Where's this from? Time. A 2015 article from Time magazine stated that more than 150 innocent or likely innocent death row prisoners have been set free since 1975. Wow. That's a lot more than I thought it would be. It's absolutely astounding that that many people are not just innocent in jail but on death row and innocent yeah texas comes up a lot because they have of all the 50 states they have the highest rate of uh false convictions in 2015 for instance texas with uh 54 exonerations had over one-third of total people in the u.s exonerated in 2015 that's not to say 54 people on death row were let go this is just in general exonerations you could totally see how it would happen too. I mean, if you, let's say you're in a downtown area, you hear screams, you run to help, and somebody's on the ground bleeding, and you try to stop the bleeding as a good Samaritan, and then suddenly the police pull up, and now they arrest you as a suspect. And if we could complicate it even further and say, well, let's say that that person who was screaming was somebody you actually knew and who was your enemy in some sense, in some Mm -hmm. sphere of life. And you were actually trying to love your enemy, but in reality, the police are just like, oh, we've got motive, we've got you at the Mm. place, we've got their blood on your hands. You know, the only thing we don't have is the weapon, and obviously you must have somehow gotten rid of it just before we pulled up. And suddenly we've got somebody on death row. I mean, obviously this is totally fictive, but like, you can see how miscarriages of justice could be possible yeah. as soon as you start mm-hmm. thinking of hypotheticals. You added that false testimony, which is, I think is one of the most common things in these false accusations. Yeah, I mean, prosecutors, I know currently across the country, they have conventions and stuff that they go to, and there's been a sort of movement within, I was reading an article, within the, the prosecutor's world of using jailhouse snitches, of using people that are in jail supposedly with these uh, defendants and say, hey, this guy told me this. And what do they get in exchange? Time off their sentence or preferential treatment. And there's been a over-reliance on that, according to this article, and prosecutors are really looking at it and saying, we really have to look at the veracity of jailhouse snitches and whether we should be using them as a matter of course going forward. Um, I do want to draw our attention to a Texas case. This article I'm about to reference is on facingsouth.org. It's a sort of uh, progressive, I guess, organization focused on the uh, southern United States. But this article from 2009 talks about how there's uh, growing evidence that Texas executed an innocent man in 2004. His name was Cameron Todd Willingham. And in a nutshell, he was convicted of burning down his house and killing his two-year-old daughter and one-year-old twins, uh, so his three kids. And in convicting him in a death penalty case, the prosecutors brought in a forensic fire expert who talked about, you know, the nature of fire and, you know, why this was an intentional fire. And it was a prosecution witness. It was for the prosecution to prove that this guy did this and as a result killed his three kids. Mm -hmm. 
they wound up convicting him, uh, sentenced him to die. And in 2004, that uh, sentence was carried out. Now, Cameron Todd Willingham had the opportunity to plead guilty to the crime and save his life. He would have spent the rest of his life in prison, but he could have said, okay, I did it. And he would have you know, lived out his days in jail. He didn't though. He always professed his innocence. He said, I'm not going to admit this, this heinous thing that I did not do. I would rather die than have the world think that I did this to my kids. Flash forward, this article says the Chicago Tribune reported that the re-examination of the Willingham case comes as many forensic disciplines face scrutiny for playing a role in the wrong, wrongful convictions that have been exposed by DNA and other scientific advances. Basically, they're re- reviewing this case and uh, forensic fire science in general and found that it's not really reliable, that it's uh, faulty. It doesn't check the boxes of, of scientific rigor. It's basically somebody theorizing about what could have happened. And, you know, this isn't as valid as we thought it was. And this is science, so-called science, was used to convict a man to die and kill the man. Like that, it was the basis for, for, for killing this man who, you know, Texas authorities are now like hey, we might have messed up here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a serious, I think of all the arguments against the death penalty, this is probably the strongest in my mind that if we cannot have a system whereby we are 100% certain that this person did this crime worthy of dying, if there's even one innocent person that has been killed because of this law, the entire law has to go out the window. You, you just, you can't have it. It's it to me, somebody being killed, not only being accused of something heinous like this that they did not do, but dying for it. That to me is is reason enough in my heart and mind to say, if we can't get it right 100 percent of the time, we should not even be doing it. Another common argument for uh, the death penalty is that it's a deterrent for future crimes. I looked at a few statistics and in general, the sort of consensus among criminologists that I found in, in, you know, my light research is that most criminologists do not believe that the death penalty is a deterrent for capital crimes from deathpenaltyinfo.org. This article says a 2009 study by a couple professors at the University of Colorado found that 88% of the nation's leading criminologists do not believe the death penalty is an effective deterrent to crime. Right, and that makes sense, too, because often the kinds of crimes that we're talking about here are acts of passion in the right. heat of the moment. They're not uh, premeditated, although some of them would be. As far as mm-hmm. where the world is at on this issue, the top countries that are executing people for crimes uh, go as follows, according to Amnesty International. Number one is China, and there's not even a reliable number on that, but it's right. thousands of people executed. And this is a, specifically between 2007 and 2012. In Iran, we have 1,663 in second place. Third place, Saudi Arabia, 423 executed. Fourth place, Iraq, 256. And then right after that is the United States, 220. So which one's not like the others? You know, like yeah. what, what's, you know, the, the civil structures in the United States are very different than a number of these other countries. Then after the United States is Pakistan with 171, then Yemen, then North Korea. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> not, a good, uh, not a good place to be. I mean, it's just like kind of a strange group of nations here. And why is the United States so high on that list? It seems like other countries either... They're just not doing it anymore. They found other ways to deal with heinous criminals. 
or they, they, those kinds of crimes don't get committed as frequently, either, either way. Right. But. And, well, at least the first three countries you listed on that list are regarded as uh, pretty oppressive. What was it? Iran, China, and, and Saudi Arabia are regarded as, you know, somewhat oppressive governments that keep a tight social control over their populations. Right. Freedom is not their... Yeah. You know, slogan for their country yeah. and coming at it from a from a uh, secular point of view I, I found a quote that i really liked from a guy named stephen bright he's a human rights attorney and uh, president of the southern center for human rights he said it can be argued that rapists deserve to be raped that mutilators deserve to be mutilated most societies however refrain from responding in this way because the punishment is not only degrading to those on whom it is imposed but it is also degrading to the society that engages in the same behavior as the criminals that's a fascinating point and we should also probably mention at this juncture that jesus himself suffered uh, capital punishment mm. so did the apostle paul so did the apostle peter so i mean it's not like we don't have a history that involves you know, being on the end of this. Now, of course, Jesus' situation is a little different. That doesn't make it right mm. what the Romans did. You know what I mean? Because it's not like they were like, oh, well, he's got to die for the world, sends the world, so somebody's got to do it. I guess we'll do it. No, <laughs> like they were they were doing it because uh, they were outmaneuvered by some other religious leaders that said, you have no friend but Caesar if you don't do something about this messianic claimant. Yeah. And then uh, with Paul and Peter, it's just complete and total miscarriages of justice on the Romans' parts. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think this is an important subject. My own position, just stated briefly in a, in a, by, by way of summary here, is that God gives governments the right to punish evildoers using coercive violence and, in extreme cases, even execution. Now, as far as in America, how this happens, I think we have good reasons to question if the, the pros of our system outweigh the cons, I mean, we haven't even talked about the pros, but it's protecting, obviously, the society from the person if they're dead. Mm-hmm. Well, um, to that point, I mean, protecting society from, I mean, that, that can also be achieved through jail. I mean, right, how many death row... that can also be achieved through jail. That's a good point, yeah. It sort of, like, shows how serious the crime is because capital punishment is yeah. the worst punishment. Maybe there are a couple of other reasons, but as far as the economics, I would say economics are pretty much a wash or in favor of not capital punishment. Uh, the justice worry is extremely significant that 150 people have been exonerated or are likely to be exonerated who are on death row during that period you were talking about, Rose. Mm-hmm. So what, do you, what are your guys' concluding thoughts here? One other pro that or argument for the death penalty that I think is important is, is the justice factor of, hey, the family of these victims getting closure, getting you know, whoever killed their son or daughter or brother or mother, father, or they feel, you know, that justice is restored, that their loved one was avenged. Here's the problem with that. In capital cases, as we already noted, you go through decades of appeals. You go through decades of court cases, legal battles, not knowing whether this person is going to get off, whether it's, yes, you might, you might eventually have this person that did this to your loved one punished but in the interim you have decades years and years of bitterness in your heart of bitterness in your heart unsure about the outcome of this following in the news talking to the lawyers yeah yeah i mean i don't think that for somebody that is filing all these appeals and and if you're the family i don't think that this is justice or if or that it's like it might be relief after two two decades that they're finally dead but think about all of the anguish and pain that those interim years cost 
Whereas if you could forgive somebody on the basis of how God's forgiven you because of Christ, yeah. then if, if you could get to that point, then it would release you from the situation. Look, this person is off the streets. They're in the system. Mm-hmm. They're either going to get executed or life in prison. And I think it's just fine to check up on that. Like, say the person has parole. The family of the victims want to go to save their peace. I think that's right. totally fine to right. protect society. But... Uh, to have this issue living in your heart for year after year, it could easily ruin your whole life. Yeah. Right? And separate from the forgiveness component, the uh, a family from the Boston Marathon, uh, one of the victims of the Boston Marathon, actually asked the prosecutor to not pursue the death penalty against the one surviving brother because they didn't want to deal with the years and years of appeals. Right. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Just want to say from the Christian perspective, um, we were all slaves of sin, according to Romans 6. He wrote, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In some sense, we were all on death row. Christ is our redemption. Christ is our hope of eternal life. We love you very much, guys. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Guys, thanks so much for listening as always. And also as always, you know, these are these are issues that we uh, we wrestle with, we go to the Bible with, we weigh different things, and we could be wrong. You could have a story or an experience that sheds more light on this, and if so, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but again, thanks for listening, and, and if you have something to say, we will definitely read it. Leave us a comment at restitudio.org. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Stay tuned for next time when we discuss killing in war. As for today, if you'd like to come online, just visit restitutio.org and you can leave a comment and join your voice in on the discussion. We'll catch you next time as we seek to get off the world script and live out authentic Christianity.